You are live with Get Connectus. Mike Agarbo here. I've uh, got my good friend uh, Carmi Levy joining me today to talk all about tech. We've got uh, a great uh, program. Uh, we will uh, be getting a little uh, bit of a, uh, a preview. Uh, Apple is going to be uh, launching their new Vision Pro headsets uh, next uh, week. We've got Brian Jackson uh, from the Infotech Research Group coming on the program to chat about uh, that. We'll also be talking with the folks over at uh, TELUS uh, about uh, cool home technology that we can see in uh, our homes now. Carmi, uh, let's look at some of the uh, the tech news uh, that uh, we are uh, following right now. Uh, looks like uh, Apple uh, has had an issue with AirDrop uh, that uh, I guess has been going on for a while. Yeah, this is uh, an interesting report out of the New York Times that shows that uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a uh, in China, some folks were riding the subway and they suddenly started getting, you know, they're they, they using their iPhones and they would receive unsolicited airdrops from somebody on the subway. They didn't, weren't sure who. Uh, and they were, uh, they were, they were political. They were, you know, denouncing General Sec Secretary Xi Jinping, calling him a despotic traitor, uh, you know, basically opposing the government, which as we know in China, probably not something you want to be doing if you don't want to be arrested. Um, and so very soon after that, uh, you know, Apple very quietly changed the default from AirDrop from being able to accept messages from everyone to the contacts only settings. So Apple didn't make an announcement, but it's pretty clear that they were trying to placate the government. Well, those uh, kinds of AirDrops continued. People on the subway for months afterward have you know, continued to report that they were receiving these messages. And so now the Chinese government is saying that uh, they are going to investigate. They're going to try to de-anonymize who is sending these. And they're going to use uh, some very sophisticated decryption techniques uh, to basically dig into the technology and try to connect uh, the usernames, the IDs, the unique tracking IDs of the individuals who are sending these messages with those messages, which, of course, if you're the Chinese government, you have access to those technologies uh, and it, it sort of paints a very distinct Big Brother-like picture of China using uh, decryption technology uh, on a platform that you and I use every day, using an app that most of us have used routinely um, to try to identify political dissidents and bring them to what, you know, what they like to call justice. It's a chilling uh, use of, of this kind of technology. And of course, Apple saying nothing uh, about, what, uh, about what's happening in China, making no changes to their technology here in North America. Yeah, AirDrop, uh, I love the feature. I, I use it all the time. It's just nice to be able to send pictures or files or, or anything to other uh, people in the uh, the Apple uh, ecosystem. And there's not really any other uh, tech companies out there that have been able to uh, really, I mean, they can replicate the feature, but if you don't have the ecosystem or the users that, that have the capability to send and receive in return, it's just not viable, really. Uh, let's move over to... Uh, rockets and planes, uh, NASA has <clears throat> debuted the X-59, which uh, turns sonic booms into quieter sonic thumps. And I, I guess that's an issue. If you want, if you want faster planes, uh, you know, you have to contend with sonic booms, like the Concorde, for example, which, uh, you know, had to uh, basically hit its speeds over the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean. So it didn't uh, disrupt residential and, and business areas. Well, and the Concorde ultimately failed uh, commercially because of that limitation, because the sonic booms were so loud that it simply wasn't feasible for them to fly supersonically over land. And so 
in the US, in Canada, in Europe, and pretty much every other developed country around the world, they banned them from flying overland at supersonic speeds. And so as a result, the, the, the way the economics worked out, the only routes that were even close to being viable were transatlantic routes. Uh, which, of course, limited the, the growth, the appeal of the Concorde and ultimately spelled its doom. It simply couldn't make money. So now there's an X plane. It's called the X-59. Um, and it's been created by a partnership between Lockheed Martin and NASA. And it looks like the future. Basically, it, lo it looks like a, a really long fighter plane. It's got an incredibly long nose. And what that long nose does is it changes the very physics of how a sonic boom is created so that when you're on the ground as it's flying over, instead of hearing a sonic boom, you hear what's called a thump, or a thump um, which is you know still a little annoying, but certainly not as annoying as a boom and certainly not as potentially damaging. And so they rolled this, this plane out uh, last week to a great fanfare. It was a really cool thing to watch on online. Uh, and, and they're planning on test flying this starting this later, later this year. And they're going to use uh, input from the community. They're going to put sensors in various parts of the U.S. And they're going to have members of the community fill out surveys about when it flies over and what they hear and what the experience is like. And they're going to take all of that data to prove that this long nose design, this very special shape of an aircraft, actually does succeed in defeating sonic booms. If they can prove that this technology works, it opens the door to creating essentially uh, future versions that that you know, of, of aircraft like the Concorde that fly supersonically, but are allowed to fly over land, which means more affordable supersonic flight, more accessible supersonic flight. Uh, you and I might be able to actually afford to get on one of these planes. And I think that's super exciting. I saw the Concorde as a kid fly overhead, uh, and I was absolutely taken by it. Really wish that we'd had something to replace with, with, with and this could potentially open the door to that technology. I got a chance to go inside a Concorde. Uh, I was in New York, and uh, I, I forget the name of the aircraft carrier they have docked. Oh, uh, USS Intrepid. Yes, yeah. they had a Concorde on on there, and I was just struck by how little amount of passengers could fit <laughs> on that thing. You know what I mean? It was just so so thin. It's a tiny. It's a tiny tiny plane. Uh, you can barely stand up in the fuselage because it's so narrow. The windows are tiny because it flies so high or it flew so high, sixty thousand feet. So easily 20 plus thousand feet more than a traditional commercial aircraft. Um, and all of these were concessions to supersonic flight. Um, and so, you know, future supersonic planes might still be, you know, probably smaller than, you know, this 777 that you're used to flying uh, over the ocean. Um, but at very least, they, they will, they'll have better economics than the Concorde. They'll be more fuel efficient. They're, they'll be able to fly supersonically to more places, which means more airlines will be interested in them. Um, and they'll also use their, there's this really cool technology that they use. There is no front windshield on this thing. So, because it's so sleek in front, that nose is so low profile in order to shape it properly. They, they didn't have room for a window. So they use a, a very high resolution camera system. They call it synthetic vision, um, to essentially create a, a, you know, basically it's almost like you're flying a simulator, but you're not. Um, and so technology like that, even if the plane, if future designs aren't supersonic, that technology can be used in traditional aircraft as well as other vehicles too. So there's lots, as is always the case with NASA designs and NASA programs, we're going to see lots of trickle down into other areas of our day-to-day -day life just from this one plane alone. Uh, sticking on the transportation uh, theme, uh, VW, Volkswagen, uh, they... 
uh, are working on technology, solid state batteries that could go 500,000 kilometers with no range loss. And that's uh, an issue for electric uh, cars. Uh, the batteries uh, over a period of time, uh, you know, the, the range on that battery starts uh, decreasing. Uh, Honda recently announced that their new cars uh, would have 10 years of, of life with only uh, with having 90% of the battery left, which, you know, a lot of people thought was was great. But VW... Uh, looks to take this a little bit further, Carmi. They are. They, they call it a solid state battery. So most batteries today, lithium ion, are based on lithium ion technology, and that's uh, that's liquid based. And of course, that has significant degradation over the life of the vehicle. Um, we already have a kind of a smaller scale example of that with our phones. After a couple of years, it doesn't hold a charge for as long. We have to keep it on on uh, you know on, you know charging for longer. Um, and you know, over time, the battery just becomes useless to the point that we have to replace it. It's one of the reasons why most of us are hesitant to buy electric vehicles. We're worried about that longevity. So a solid state battery re- replaces all of the the chemistry, the liquid chemistry, with a with physical with 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 uh, with with with, uh, with a different technology that is much more resistant to this kind of degradation over time. And Volkswagen's target is. It retains 95% of its capacity after over a thousand charging cycles, which is way better. Uh, than current technologies basically means that you can drive your car to 500,000 kilometers and beyond without worrying that the battery is going to degrade to the point of it becoming useless. Um, That alone can help overcome some of that hesitancy that many of us feel about moving to an electric vehicle. Nobody wants to be driving a Tesla 50 years from now where the battery barely holds a charge uh, and to replace it would be significantly more expensive. So they've developed this in the lab. They've tested it. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, that is a long way from commercialization. So they haven't figured out how to manufacture it yet. They haven't figured out how to scale it up yet. It's not like you and I can buy a car tomorrow with it. But certainly the fact that uh, they created this technology and proven that it can work means that it's only a matter of time before this comes to an electric vehicle near you. And I would expect within five, six, seven years, perhaps, uh, we'll start to see more designs actually hitting the road using this. And Interestingly, you know, right near where I am in St. Thomas, Ontario, southwestern Ontario, Volkswagen is building one of the world's largest battery uh, plants uh, to to drive the electric vehicle industry here in Canada. So conceivably, that solid state technology will come to a plant like this and we'll be able to benefit from it every day when we take our EVs to wherever we need to go. You're back with the program. We're going to talk mixed reality now. Last year, Apple uh, announced a, a brand new product in a new category for them, the Apple Vision Pro. This is a a mixed reality headset, so it blends both virtual and augmented reality into one device. It is launching next week. People will be able to get their hands on it. Will there be enough? How much is it? What are we expecting? Well, when we have those kind of questions, we go to Brian Jackson from the Infotech Research Group. He's the research director over there. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Always glad to join you, Mike. So th- this is interesting. Uh, Apple hasn't really come out with like a, a brand new product for some time now. So this is a kind of a, a big adventure for them, so to speak. What are we uh, expecting? Uh, I know they're going to be available. People can actually get them in their hands. Will there be enough, do you think? Yeah, will there be enough? I don't think so for everybody that wants one, Mike. Uh, I saw one analyst predict that the number of units that would be available on launch day is in like that 60,000 to 80,000 range. Um, So even though this uh, product does have a pretty high price tag of $3,500 US, 
which I think uh, converts into Canadian currency to be about a million dollars. Um, <laughs> you know, there's going to be uh, enough people, enough Apple fans, enough tech enthusiasts uh, that are looking at this, you know, most technologically advanced mixed reality, virtual reality headset ever produced for the consumer market, and they'll, they'll want to buy it. Uh, so there's going to be more demand than there are units uh, available on day one. And I expect that that will actually continue through all of this year because uh, projections show that Apple might only produce about half a million of the Vision Pro headsets all year long. It's it's an interesting thing, and I, I liken it to the chicken and the egg kind of analogy. Uh, so you've got all these headsets. Uh, is there going to be enough content out there to, you know satisfy the folks that buy these these headsets i mean in the first year i know you can watch videos and things like that uh on them and obviously there's going to be some dedicated apps but there's not going to be a lot in the first year kind of like when the ipad first came out there wasn't a lot of you know native ipad content yeah i think that apple's strength will be getting content produced for the vision pro and that's for two reasons, because of its strong relationship with developers. So um, if you're on, I'm on a developer mailing list, just so I can see how Apple is talking to them. And they've been preparing uh, developers for this launch of the Vision OS and the Vision App Store. Because remember, this thing gets its own separate app store. So you could have that special augmented uh, reality, virtual reality content separate from the other iOS apps or Mac apps. And uh, they've been, you know, encouraging developers to get building in there ahead of time. And the great thing is that you can use some of these apps that are developed on other Mac products, like the iPhone, right? So even if you're not wearing the screen on your head, you can ex experience virtual reality or augmented reality, you know, just through the screen of your iPhone. You know, how you can sort of point it like uh, when you play Pokemon Go. You point it at the real world. You see the digital content layered over top of it. So it'll be experiences like that, uh, but even more high fidelity, I think. Um, and then you see the partnerships are coming. Like uh, Disney has agreed to launch some uh, 3D movies with uh, the Vision Pro that'll be available at launch. And even if you don't have that Disney Plus membership, you'll be able to access these through the Apple, um, the Apple TV app. So I think that's a reasonably good premium content uh, partnership to launch with. And then the, the real killer app, I think, for content will be your own content that you produce with the iPhone camera and with the Vision Pro camera itself. Because the Vision Pro uh, is going to allow you to explore your own 3D photos and videos. And uh, you have iPhones out on the market right now that have been out, you know, for the past year, uh, at least, and that people are able to record uh, and take these sort of uh, photos with depth information. And I think experiencing those will elevate uh, the experience of reliving your own memories beyond looking at them on an iPhone screen or on a, on a computer screen. Because once you feel like you're immersed in the environment through a 3D effect, I think people are going to like it. Like they'll feel they're really going back to that beach vacation that they experienced um, or, you know, going back to uh, their child's birthday or whatever it is that they recorded. So 
that that's really smart allowing people to quickly create content that they would want to put this headset on to experience what i mean it's it's expensive right uh 3500 us uh which is you know obviously gets up near f- <laughs> close to 5000 can Canadian, right? Yeah. Right. And, and it's not even available. Like, it's not launching in Canada right now, right? So we don't even know what exactly Apple will price it at. So, but if you do the back of the napkin estimation, it's going to be around $5,000. It's it's a lot of money. I To be a mass market item, uh, it has to get down to the $1,000 price range, don't you think? Probably agree. Okay, if we're talking mass market adoption, five thousand dollars Canadian would be too much, and uh, this is why Apple's only producing half a million of these units in its first year. You know, you look back at the other new Apple products that were brought to market, and while it was always the first one that caught, you know, they sort of caught everybody's attention and uh, got the buzz going, it wasn't actually until at least that second generation that. People really noticed that the user interface was improved and they were able to launch it uh, with a bit more of a polished hardware look and the price point came down. Now, uh, Apple's never released um, a product that's been quite this expensive, you know, um, for a new category of uh, technology that people might not necessarily feel they need today. Uh, But they have been able to carve out new categories they've proven their ability to innovate previously uh so what i suspect is that you know all those eager early adopters will get their hands on this they'll help apple by giving them feedback on what features they really like what really makes the difference in the experience and apple will be able to iterate on the hardware decide what it maybe can do without on the second generation and release a cheaper product that more people would want to buy been talking with Brian Jackson from the Infotech Research Group. He's the research director over there about the Apple Vision Pro launching this week down in the U.S. Uh, for a pretty penny, but lots of people are excited. Thanks for joining us today, Brian. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, wanted to talk about some of the latest uh, things that we're following in uh, the technology space. Uh, this one is one to be concerned about. Uh, you know, there are constant uh, scams happening, uh, you know, via phone, uh, online. It looks like now scammers are impersonating the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre in uh, a scheme targeting Ontario residents. And this is personally, I think we've all gotten used to uh, getting calls or emails or text messages from uh, individuals or organizations claiming to be our bank or Canada Post or our insurance company or the CRA. Uh, and of course, they're none of that. They're just trying to get us to click on a link, which of course means that you know, the other what we click on that link, we've been infected, we've been targeted. Um, whereas now we are seeing uh, scammers uh, reach out in the name of the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, which of course is the organization, the government organization that is the central clearinghouse, the authority on cybersecurity in Canada. So it's kind of rich that that cyber scammers would be targeting them. Um, and it plays out exactly the same way. You get a message from the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre or it looks like it's from them. It, it uses the same logo. It, it, it basically claims uh, to be, you know, there are transactions that are happening in your name. You have to click this in order to address it. Uh, you might be infected with a virus, whatever it is. It claims that you need to act immediately. In some cases, click on a link. In case it's dial star 72 to 
forward the call somewhere, uh, or they might even say, hey, you know, take out money from an ATM and we're going to come and pick it up, um, which, of course, should be your flag that this is a this is a scam. But, you know, many people, of course, are still vulnerable to this kind of thing. So the fact that it's, uh, you know, the CAFC, I think, just reinforces how widespread this kind of activity is. It's a form of phishing, uh, trying to get us to do something that we shouldn't. Um, and as always, scammers are becoming even more sophisticated in the techniques they use to try to fool us into believing that people in positions of authority are trying to reach out to us. No, they're not. They never would. They never will. And we should not take the bait. It's, uh, I'm, Carmi, I'm even finding it difficult now. Like I'm just inundated with emails and phone calls, uh, that I know are scams and they're, they're just looking so real now. Like I, even some of these could fool me. Yeah, we have AI to blame for that, right? Because AI is is making it so much easier for uh, scammers to create full fidelity, high fidelity versions of logos uh, and of content. You know, we used to be able to tell, oh, of course that email isn't legit because the the writing is terrible, the grammar isn't quite there. Whereas now, even if uh, a, a scammer is based overseas and English is not their first name, they can use artificial intelligence to create really good sounding copy. Uh, that sounds like uh, you know it's it comes from someone who speaks English to begin with, and so uh, they don't even have to be experts in cybercrime. Uh, in many cases, they can buy a kit online and they use these to reach out. So we're seeing the the frequency of these kinds of attacks go up. We're seeing it, uh, you know, mo many more of these messages in our inboxes, and we're getting a lot more of these calls. And we're also seeing sophistication. Uh, that it's that much harder to tell the difference between what is real and what is not. And, you know, what I always say is never worry about hanging up on a legitimate caller or ignoring what could be a legitimate email. Uh, so in other words, don't answer anything. Uh, instead, contact the claimed sender directly. So if it's the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, I will disconnect from that message or that, that, that connection, that phone call, whatever it is. And I'll go to the website. I'll load up the website myself. I won't click on a link that's given to me and I won't follow up home. I will reach out on my own. And nine times out of 10, they will say, we never tried calling you. Uh, so that is a scam. So yes, harder to help to tell the difference, but it means we've got to seize communication off, take over, reach out yourself. Yeah. So I want to talk about a few other scams. Another huge one for me is I'm constantly getting delivery notices now. I, I do get a lot of packages, uh, Carmi. So mm. um, it's difficult to know what's real and, and what's not real anymore. I can't tell. Like I'm getting text messages. Somehow they have my phone number. Uh, one's from Canada Post uh, or DHL or UPS saying that they couldn't deliver the package to me. Uh, you know, click on this link or phone this number. Uh, to make alternative uh, arrangements. And again, they are so real, but I can tell by, you know, if it's a link, I can tell that the, the web address is, is not real for, for example, but I'm, uh, uh, it's, it's difficult. It is. Uh, and they're getting better at it, but you know, my, my overall rule is, is no legitimate delivery company will ever send you a message like that to begin with. And so if, for example, I'm expecting an Amazon delivery rather than clicking on the link that I get in that message, I will log into my Amazon account and look at all the things that I've ordered and manually try to track them that way. Um, don't use your inbox to manage these interactions. Use the apps that you're familiar with, with the companies that you know that you've been doing business with. Um, you know, my tip off is often that it's not personalized. And so I'll get a message saying, you know, we could not complete the delivery. 
Um, but they don't use my name. They don't use my address. There, there is no sort of personalized information in there. And yes, they are getting better at including that information, but that isn't always the case. Um, so that should be the tell. Use the apps of the delivery companies that you're familiar with. Do not lean on your inbox to manage these kinds of interactions. Uh, I'm also seeing an uptick in uh, banking uh, scams as well. And again, it's through my text messaging. Uh, I'm... <laughs> I'm getting them from other banks, thank God that I'm not banking with, so I can tell those ones. But, um, you know, I've got an account at RBC, for example, and I'm getting messages, uh, you know, saying that there's been an issue, a security breach, you know, click on here. And I, I know that that's a scam. So, uh, again, for the listeners, if you're getting any of these um, these banking texts or messages, uh, you know, saying that there is a problem, I would just go, don't click on any links. Don't click on them. Just go to your banking app without clicking any links just to see what's going up. Because typically if there are some issues, if you go into your banking app, uh, you can you can see if there has been a problem or not, or just phone the bank directly. Exactly. You know, I've got, you know, we've got really a relationship with our nearest, you know, the branch that we deal with. We know who the manager is um, and, and all of their staff. So we'll just call them and have a conversation uh, and they will, you know, because the landscape is constantly changing. They're aware of this. Uh, and so they will you know, probably have similar guidance as well as update guidance for us um, to you know, make us feel comfortable that we're dealing with them and not someone claiming to be them. Um, chances are they know, uh, but build that relationship. It can go a long way toward ensuring that you're confident when you reach out to them and have that conversation that you are not being scammed. Yeah. So again, for the listeners out there, these scams are getting better. AI is making them better. Uh, unfortunately, that's one of the downsides of artificial technology. It can make them sound more personalized and uh, fix a lot of those spelling and grammar issues that, uh, you know, would be a telltale sign, uh, you know, of, uh, of, of a scam. So you just got to be, I, I say, extra alert. And, you know, especially, you know, if you're a caregiver as well, if you're looking after, uh, you know, elderly family members uh, or parents, they are huge, huge targets because, uh, uh, you know, it, it's harder for them to kind of decipher, you know, some of these uh, these scams. So just make sure that uh, they're educated uh, as well and uh, you keep on top of uh, their, uh, you know, digital communications uh, out there. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here. Got an interesting guest with us today. His name is Dwayne Benefield. He is with TELUS and is going to talk to us about how they're making home automation a lot simpler. Thanks for joining us, Dwayne. Thank you for having me. So you're kind of the innovation guy for TELUS. So what, what's under your purview? So I manage all the consumer-facing products and services. Like all of them? Like all of them, including uh, our communication with, with those consumers through our marketing and communications, uh, paid media, et cetera. <laughs> so, Dwayne, uh, I'm just looking at your background. You're an ex-PlayStation guy. I was there for 11 years, yes. So what are, what are you doing at TELUS? Like they, they wanted someone ahead of all the consumer stuff. And, like, hey, let's go find a guy from PlayStation. Like what do you bring to the table? Yeah, so I, well, basically, I've spent my entire career, um, you know, in let's call it, you know, TMT. People call it technology, media, and telecom. And so, you know, I started off my career, interestingly enough, at KPMG, which is one of the big four accounting firms. But I spent most, almost my you have a really interesting career tra trajectory <laughs> here. KPMG, okay, keep going. Well, my I spent most of my time there, and it was only like a year and a half, basically taking Quest Communications public. Quest Communications later, you know, was bought by CenturyLink. So, you know, twenty years later, I'm back in telecom. Because from, from uh, KPMG, I went to Disney and was there for a decade. Um, but always kind of looking at disrupting and innovating, uh, particularly internationally. And then from, uh, from there, I went to Google. Uh, and that's where I kind of got my ad chops, learned really about you know, addressable advertising. And uh, then from there, went to Sony. Where, and I spent you know, a decade, uh, 11 years actually, at PlayStation. 
And so that was largely creating what is now the PlayStation Network, uh, including a lot of the new services in the in the video and uh, and like subscription marketplaces. So always innovation. Telus was looking for somebody to kind of lead kind of all the products and services in a much more disruptive, innovative manner. Having built you know services like PlayStation View, for example, which was you know the world's first uh, what they call virtual MVPD or like internet delivered multi-channel TV. They felt like, you know, that was, uh, you know, a good background to help kind of really innovate, uh, not just new services for TELUS, but also kind of really bring innovation into some of the existing core services like home internet, mobility, entertainment. Is there a connection to all, like, cause TELUS, you're into like all sorts of stuff, sort of cell phones to smart home security. Is there like is there a thread that connects it all? Absolutely. And it's a great question. I, I like to think of almost like, you know, cogs in a wheel. And they, and they really all do help kind of create a, a virtual cycle or a self-sustaining ecosystem. Because most of these products that, you th- that we're talking about here, like the smart home or even entertainment, OTT, right? They all rely on connectivity. And so TELUS now can provide connectivity nationally, both in the home through home internet or out of the home through mobility. So you got the foundations. Yes, because yeah. it all ultimately rides over the internet, right? And so that is what, I guess, gives us not just a right to play, but an obligation to play in these places because we're actually, you know, in a unique place that we can actually simplify for Canadian consumers, like a lot of their internet delivered services. So not just smart home, but think about, you know, today, the number of passwords and usernames um, that you have across all of your services, be it OTT services, be it music services, you know, devices, but they all rely on one home internet and generally from one provider. So you may have 10 different devices and 20 different apps, but one internet provider. And so we can actually simplify and, and you know, make that experience much more uh, harmonious for, for consumers. We're talking with Dwayne Benefield. He's uh, with TELUS, looking after all of the innovation when it comes to a lot of the stuff we're using from our smartphone to our home internet to smart home security. I want to go down the smart home security side. Let's now. do. Uh, you guys are in providing security solutions you know, monitored camera systems and stuff. And somehow you've like thrown home automation in there, which is a minefield, okay? I'm, an, I'm a tech nerd and I love smart home technology. I've got the Roombas. I've got like a, a robot uh, lawnmower. I think there's, you know, when I check my, uh, my, my router, I've got like probably like 90 connected devices in my home. And my problem is they don't really work well together. You know what I mean? Like the dream was that it's going to have the smart home. Everything's going to be so easy, but I've got like a dozen different apps and it's crazy. And so why, why are you jumping in there? Yeah. So, you know, part of the reason that, that TELUS, um, you know, got into smart home security was basically, you know, with the foresight that home automation would become a very big business. And so, as I mentioned, we already have over 1 million smart home security providers, uh, subscribers. And that again Wait, is one million. In one Canada. million in Canada. One million smart home security mm-hmm. subscribers already. We just crossed that threshold last quarter. And so that you know again is is split between largely the true fully monitored security. So I don't know if somebody broke broke in and moved you know uh, moved in my house or you know really to secure give me peace of mind for the home. Or we actually have you know some automation in terms of like camera only plans. So you can actually just get a doorbell camera from us and and help kind of monitor you know movement at your doorbell. You know if your UPS driver showed up. But, you know, where we, where we saw an opportunity is that, you know, there's a proliferation of smart devices, right? In fact, I don't think you can go to, to Best Buy or Walmart or even go to Amazon to come and buy a, a electronic device for your home that now doesn't come with an app, right? Or any username and password. And to your point, that's part of why we decided to embark on this journey is because like consumers are frustrated, right? They're frustrated that, you know, the smart 
home really isn't smart. Devices don't connect to each other. There's walled gardens. In fact, our research, and just to give you some context, is why we have a million smart home security uh, subscribers today. We project that the Canadian marketplace for a truly smart home automation platform is around nine and a half million homes. So there's a really big market out there out of the 14 million Canadian homes we have to actually that really want a truly smart home automation platform because they're tired of the complexity of the company. Trying to connect it all themselves. Yeah. And so that's where we like, we have to figure out a way to to, to change the game and to lean into customer first. So when we met with Amazon uh, a couple of years ago, I gave them that challenge. I'm like, here's what I want to do. I want to create this world's first device agnostic smart home platform. Can you help me do it? And for context, I have done quite a bit with Amazon in my last two stops, both at uh, at PlayStation and at um, at Disney in terms of trying to disrupt and innovate. And so they took the challenge, and together we basically are, are building this uh, this cloud agnostic, or sorry, a device agnostic platform. And it actually is requiring both companies to invest heavily to make it a reality. They're actually creating two new cloud services just for this uh, platform. One's called Ubiquitous Control, and the other one is called Zero Touch. Uh, they won't be generally available for you know some time still, but we're actually going to be able to leverage them to build this platform uh, at, at now, actually, and uh, deploy commercially next quarter. Okay, so what does this look like for normal people listening right now? So smart home security, I think people can wrap their head around that. Some cameras, they're monitored. Yep. Um, so what what does this next level bring them? So here's what's exciting about it, and why you mentioned why TELUS and why are we getting into this, is through a single app, you can now manage your not your home internet, which again, you can do today with Telus. You have an app that your home internet, your Wi-Fi. But that same app now is going to allow you to control your connected home. So think of that one app now basically being your brain for managing all your connected devices in your home and being your central point for the individual services you subscribe to. So for example, say, you know, um, when we launch this uh, early next year, the energy management service. Say you, and you don't have to have Telus internet just for you, know, you know, uh, to know, but if you have Telus internet, you have the app, you can now basically open it up and very simply, and uh, you can actually know what kind of, what your home is using for energy and how to save energy. And so if you, for example, just got your energy bill and it was much higher than you expected. Too much. You can say, hey, tell us, I need to save 10, 20% on my energy bill. Well, now actually through the through a single point of um, uh, pane of glass or through a single interface of your choosing, we can actually now uh, gamify or educate you on how to save that 10 or 15%. And, and to extend, you have a lot of smart devices, we can actually do it for you. So uh, case in point, like help regulate your um, heating and cooling systems, help you like at night, turn it down for you, turn it up in the morning before you get up or so your refrigerator. Refrigerators use more energy than you think, and they don't need to be on 24 seven. We can actually shut it off for two hours in the middle of the night. You need to stay shut the fridge off, shut the fridge off. And that's not going to affect it. No, and it won't affect it at all. But it's going to save money saves money. Or just for example, say you have old washing machine uh, and dryers and an old dishwasher and you're using it at three o'clock in the afternoon, probably the worst time to use it uh, or peak energy times will gamify and say, Hey, you know, if you, Mike, if you save, uh, if you wait to do your dishes till five o'clock, you can save 5%. And so we'll actually educate and inform you through this single app as well. Dwayne, is this going to work? Like I just think of normal people. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, yes. like even I have trouble trying to connect all this stuff. Yes. So how are you going to simplify it? Here, let me give an example because yeah, um, it is hard to comprehend about how great the innovation is. But like today, let's take Philips Hue, for example, light bulbs. The right? smart lighting. Great light bulbs, right? But you know, you, you bring home from, say, Walmart, that light bulb, open up the box, it has a hub. First, you got to plug in the hub. Then you got to download an app, set up username, password, and then screw in the light bulb, and then set up the light bulb, right? 
So, but leveraging these new cloud services, and that's why we partner with AWS, is because this needed hyperscaler support. Isn't it? You can now screw in that light bulb, get rid of the hub, throw it away. You now have one brain in the house, and you immediately your telesmart will say, "Hey, Mike, I see you got a new light bulb. Um, and do you want to add it to your smart home? Yes, or you say yes or clap yes, shut up. And yeah. and and then and say, oh, you already have a you know in that room, you already have a routine routine set up to shut off the lights when you go to bed. You want to add this light bulb to that routine? Yes, and you're done. So what used to take two hours now literally can be done in 30, 45 seconds. Dwayne, I have ten Philips smart bulbs in my home. Okay, change all the colors. Don't even use them anymore. They're just there to turn the lights on and off. Like I just create the moods or anything because it gets unconnected somehow sometimes and because I've changed different things and now they're just regular light bulbs. I spent yes. all this money on these stupid smart light bulbs because I thought they're cool. I just buy it into the dream, but now I just don't use them. Well, and here's one way to explain it to the, you know, to, to your users is like today, the reason why that that's troublesome is you have one internet provider, yeah, right? And then that, um, in a provider, you have a, you have a router, a Wi-Fi router that then connects to a hub, that then connects to the light bulbs, yeah. right? And probably involves two or three apps. Now, um, and again, uh, just for users to understand, there's you know five or six different communication protocols that control all those devices. A lot. Yes, and so things like you probably heard like Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, Zigbee, Z-Wave, Matter is a big one coming. We support all of them through one hub, and so we're removing some of the, the complexities in that value chain. So that light bulb now connects directly to the Telus hub, directly to your app. So now that's why it's, it's we're moving a lot of steps in the process and a lot of the friction that, that or the you know problems that can occur in all those steps by basically keeping it down to you know the device, the hub, and the user. And because we're the internet provider in many cases as well, you now can actually um, triage, is it a Wi-Fi issue, is it a device issue, and it's See, all wild, problem, right? Because when I have problems, like I'm, I'm contacting my provider, I'm contacting Philips, and of course, it's never anyone's problem, right? Yes, <laughs> except it's my problem. <laughs> it is your problem, and that's why you know what I, why I'm excited to be here and looking at how we're leveraging Gen, Gen, Gen AI is because you know Gen AI actually can now help triage and mediate problems. Like we'll know before the consumer will know that you had an issue, whether it's a device issue, whether your internet was cut, whether you know, your Netflix is not streaming because, you know, they had an encoding issue, right? JDI can be ahead of that before you are, and we can be communicating with you before you ever have to think about calling somebody. We're actually going to, hey, Mike, got a text message. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're having a buffering issue because of X, Y, or Z, and realize this is an issue, but we're on it. And for your troubles, you know, here's basically a credit for your next VOD purchase, right? So it's exciting. That was Dwayne Benefield from TELUS talking all about uh, the latest in smart home technology and automation. That's all the time we have left for Get Connected. I'm Mike Agarbo signing off. We will see you again next week.